I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I am your other host, Emily Beijing. So I spent way too long trying to think of a clever way to tie the two albums we're about to talk about together. They didn't come out the same year. And even though I don't know if you can say that one of these albums would have happened without the other, mostly Aaliyah's self-titled and Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope are just hella sexy R&B albums that were ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. So that should be good enough of a reason to be talking about these two albums paired together. Because as soon as I came up against the wall of, oh, they didn't come out the same year. So all this other intro that I wrote doesn't really work. That's unfortunate. (laughs) So I am going to (laughs) keep it short, I guess. So chronologically, Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope came out first. So we will start there. And then you'll get to hear the original intro that I wrote that didn't work later on. (laughs) Uh, That sounds good. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's all on hot potato to you, Emily. No, it's totally fine. I just... Like I said, the talking about Aaliyah's self-titled is like, you know, it, it was kind of a little bit like bittersweet, obviously, because it's the 20-year anniversary of the album, but also of her untimely passing. So, uh, yeah, I wrote a whole intro around 2001 and just like how many iconic albums that came out that year. And I was like, well, if I was going to do that with 97, I'd have to just do some two whole like parallel lists. And it's a whole thing. Yeah. So instead... <laughs> I'm well, doing this. <laughs> well, the good news with Velvet Rope is it does sound, come from a sad place, but ultimately leads to an amazing album that was way ahead of its time. So as Marco said, I'm going to discuss The Velvet Rope, which was Dan- Janet Jackson's sixth album and re- was released in 1997. This album came off of the heels of her first compilation, Design of the Decade, which went on to sell 10 million copies, which for a greatest hits album is insane. And prior to that, her first album with Virgin Records, Janet, which had sold 14 million copies. 
On top of all this, she had just recorded the smash hit Scream with her brother, Michael Jackson, which won the 1996 Grammy Award for Best Short Form Music Video and is one of the most expensive music videos ever made, although some people dispute it's the most expensive. It's kind of all over the place. But it had a budget of $7 million, which would be $11.7 million in 2021, which is a rom-com's budget these days. (laughs) Like a, Did not you, a, like a very high-end rom-com, but like middle-of-the-road rom-com. Like a Netflix rom-com. Did yeah. you convert the dollars for inflation oh, for this someone, year? Someone oh, kindly okay. did that for us on, on Wikipedia. <laughs> okay. I wasn't sure if it was Emily math or like math that was done by someone else. So, no, okay. no. Someone did. Someone else did it, which means it's right. <laughs> I knew Janet had sold a ton of records, but yeah, she's sold over 100 million albums over her career, which again, bonkers. Prior to the Velvet Ropes release, she had renegotiated her contract with Virgin Records for $80 million. The contract established her as the highest paid recording artist in history, surpassing the recording industry's then unparalleled $60 million contracts earned by Madonna and her brother, Michael Jackson. With her recording contract under A&M Records fulfilled in 1991, um, A&M, by the way, for those of you who are un, who do not know, stands for Albert and Moss. It was a record label that was founded by Herb Albert and Jerry Moss and uh, was very big at the time because it was known for really taking care of its artists. Um, Janet Jackson had signed a pretty good contract there, but ultimately, I mean, she signed an insane one with Virgin, a multi-million dollar one, in fact, uh, which was estimated to be somewhere between 32 to 50 million. And that's before the renegotiation, which at the time made her the highest paid recording artist. Behind the scenes leading up to this album, while she had experienced all this immense success, personally, she was going through a huge period of anxiety and major depression. She had suffered an emotional breakdown during the world tour for her previous album, Janet. The tour was from November 1993 to April 1995 and had seven legs and 123 dates. I know. Like, I don't know how I could not do this and not have a breakdown. (laughs) So. That's a it really long tour. A long tour. Very long tour. And I know there were periods where she had breaks, but still, uh, to be on tour for almost two full years is But nuts. you're you're basically doing kind of like the same set. Like you're you don't yeah. have time to work on other music at all. You're 100%. just doing the same songs over and over and over. I'm sure that that is just uh yeah, it is uh grounds for a mental breakdown for sure. <laughs> She was at a crossroads in her career and questioned if she wanted to keep performing due to the demands of the recording industry. She's also dealing with a lot of suppressed trauma around her race, remembering instances of teachers humiliating her as a child. She said in an interview, quote, I'd look in the mirror and hate myself. I'd sit and cry. It was so hard for me to look at myself and find something that I liked, not just physically, but something that was good in me. Jackson's breakdown stemmed from body dysmorphia, childhood trauma and humiliation, and trauma from her abusive marriage to James DeBarge from the band DeBarge. Jackson, by the way, was a teenager when she got married in the 80s to him, um, and the marriage was annulled due to his cocaine addiction, and during the entire time they were married, they actually lived with the Jackson family. She also dealt with self-harm. She apparently banged her head against a wall when she was feeling unattractive and struggled with bulimia, anorexia, and binge eating. Um, She was pretty reluctant to see a psychologist, probably for some reasons, including the fact that uh, her family, they are Jehovah's Witnesses. So um, 
sometimes uh, they are kind of apprehensive to certain kind of medical treatments. She actually turned to a guru figure to work through her trauma around 1996. And she said in this New York Daily News article, quote, with a few friends, we went to this very spiritual place in the desert searching for a feeling. That's where I met him, this cowboy. He's an older man who has experienced a great deal. He's the one who helped me through this. He's been there for me. No one said, here's this guy. We just stumbled upon one another and he wound up telling me things about myself just by talking with me. It was as if he had known me all my life. I couldn't help but cry. I asked him if we could keep in touch. We talk on the phone. I'll just vent and he listens. Some people probably think I'm crazy. That's fine. I kind of have this like Sam Elliott figure <laughs> um, visual in my mind when I'm thinking of this, but I'm just happy that like Janet was able to talk to someone. I, w- I was hoping that she would see a therapist, but um, I mean, anyway. Kind of, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> not necessarily a substitute for a therapist, but yes, I too am seeing sort of like a Marlboro man figure, but like he's, you know, kind of shadowy and doesn't really smoke, but like, you know, the outline of a Marlboro man yeah, exactly. type person who, I don't know, I'm reading the book Made for Love right now, and there's a character in the book called Liver, and I'm sort of picturing the same kind of person talking to Janet Jackson. <laughs> I love it. Ultimately, this album would serve as her catharsis in response to everything going on in her life. In terms of themes, between Janet and the Velvet Rope, Jackson turned 30. She also proceeded to dye her hair red, pierce her nose, and get some tattoos and and other piercings. Her previous albums had referenced sexuality, but it was this album where these topics were fully explored. Introspection was the main theme of this album, and the tracks openly discuss and alluded to depression, self-worth, social networking, and domestic violence, BDSM, sexual orientation, AIDS, and same-sex relationships. The title came from the velvet rope that you would see at clubs and events. Jackson said in an interview, quote, we're all driven by premieres or nightclubs and seeing the rope separating those who can enter and those who can't. Well, there's also a velvet rope that ha- we have inside us, keeping others from knowing our feelings. In the velvet rope, I'm trying to expose and explore those feelings. I'm inviting you inside my velvet rope. The queer themes throughout this album are, can be heard on songs like Free Zone, styled with an X instead of a Z, which describes gay, lesbian, and bisexual relationships, and Jackson's full support for those relationships. Together Again is about losing a friend to AIDS, and Jackson alludes to her own queerness and losing her virginity to a woman in her cover of Rod Stewart's Tonight's the Night, where she's made the choice to not change the pronouns in the song. In an interview with the New Zealand Herald during the Velvet Rope tour, apparently Jackson knew the person who cut Stewart's hair and, quote, he really enjoyed the remake. And at his concert not that long ago after tour- doing Tonight's the Night, he said, quote, that's an original song by Janet Jackson. It had been one of Janet Jackson's favorite songs since she was a kid. Uh, because of the queer themes explored in this album, it was actually banned in Singapore. And I believe it might have been banned in a few other countries. Domestic violence was also explored in the song, What About, fairly explicitly, while sex and BDSM were explored in songs like Go Deep and Rope Burn. These themes continue to be explored in the interludes that took place between the songs, which included phone calls or Jackson talking, various kind of little interludes that were, you know, like a minute, a minute and 30. One of those I was, I (laughs) replayed the Velvet Rope before we recorded and one of the interludes came on and I was like, wow, remember when this was a whole thing, like part of an album? And I listen, maybe I'm just like pure chaos, but I listen to albums on shuffle. Like my Spotify is always on shuffle. So it comes out of nowhere. So instead of it leading into it, like it would on a CD, it just doesn't play that way. So it's like I heard it. Yeah, I heard it after. um, (laughs) 
I heard the prelude to a song after I'd heard the song. So it was sort of backwards, but at least it was on theme. But um, I am glad that we have mostly evolved past interludes and albums. 100%. Um, so in addition to listening this to this album, I've been re-listening to just all of Janet Jackson's albums. Just I'm a big fan of hers. Um, and they're big in like um, Rhythm Nation also uses them. I believe Janet Jackson mm-hmm. or sorry, Janet also uses them. But there's one to point. So it is interludes are a little... <laughs> <laughs> jarring when you are listening in shuffle. It's kind of like when you listen to the Girl Talk album out of order a little bit. Um, I don't know. I kind of like that, though. That's fun. That's like being in the club. You don't yeah. know what's going to happen next. You never know. One of the interludes on the Velvet Rope, though, is called Speakerphone, and it's a phone call between yes. Janet Jackson and her then-sister, Lisa, sister-in-law, Lisa Marie Presley, because who could forget that marriage, talking oh, about yeah. masturbation. <laughs> Lord. Uh, I always also forget that Lisa Marie is Riley Keough's uh, mother, so that is exciting to always remember. The album was mostly recorded between January through July of 1997 at Flight Time Studios, which is Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis's recording studio, more on them in a bit, in Adena, Minnesota, as well as the Hit Factory in New York and the record plant in L.A. Some of the initial work was done in between the tour dates of the Janet World Tour, but was on was put on hold due to mental health issues that Jam- Jackson was experiencing at the time. Jimmy Jam said that there were days where she just wouldn't show up to the studio with everything she was going through, but she ultimately came back in January 1997 to record. The album was co-produced by Jackson, Jimmy Jam, and Cherry- Terry Lewis, Jackson's most frequent collaborators, and her then-husband, Renee Elizondo Jr., Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis actually got their start being members of the time, as in Morris's Day's Morris Day's band, who frequently opened for Prince and are heavily featured in Purple Rain. Eventually, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis would become producers, and through their manager, music executive Dina R. Andrews, they were introduced to several record executives, including one named John McLean, a then AR manager at AM Records, who had helped launch Janet Jackson's career. Jackson had then released two albums at this point. So this is mid-80s, both under the guidance of her father, Joe Jackson. Neither had been huge successes, and she made the decision to no longer have her family manage her business affairs. Enter Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who would then begin their partnership with Jackson with her breakthrough album aptly named Control in 1986, which would be the first of Jackson's albums to get an Album of the Year Grammy nomination. The duo co-produced all of Jackson's albums until 2008's Discipline. During that time, Janet Jackson received 10 Grammy nominations and won two, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were nominated for Producers of the Year 11 times, sharing one of those nominations with Janet and winning the Grammy the first time they were nominated in 1986. Jimmy Jam has used his real name, by the way, James Harris III, for all credits as a songwriter, while using the name Jimmy Jam as producer credit. They have had together more Billboard number ones than any other songwriting and production team in history. They have produced 16 Billboard Hot 100 number one hits and 26 Billboard R&B number one hits. In terms of the production on The Velvet Rope, it should be noted that there are a bunch of great samples throughout the album. So I'll just go through um, kind of a sample of those samples, if you will. Uh, Velvet Rope song samples Hobo Scratch by Malcolm McLaren and the world famous Supreme Team and Tubular Bells by Mark by Mike Oldfield. You samples a Cisco Kid by War. Got Till It's Gone samples Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. My Need samples Love Hangover by Diana Ross and You're All I Need to Get By by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. 
Free Zone Samples, Think About It by Lynn Collins, Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drawls, and Joys by Pleasure, and Together Again Samples, Bridge Zone by Yuzo Kushiro. In terms of the overall release and reception, Velvet Rope was released on October 7th, 1997. The album's cover was shot by photographer Ellen Von Unworth, who also shot Britney Spears' Blackout album cover and and Christina Aguilera's Back to Basics cover. Additional photography was done by Mario Testino. The cover and its interior photos revealed Jackson's hennaed red hair and showed her new piercings and tattoos. These new tattoos were on her neck, wrist, foot, back, and lower thigh. She also had gotten nipple, septum, and labia piercings. Uh, That last one, by the way, is not visible in the photography. (laughs) Some of these. Yeah, thank you for clarifying. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the internal photos also showed her hands tied in bondage and latex attire. And one photo of Jackson had her wearing a latex ensemble with her nipple piercing peering through. The photo also shows Jackson pricking her body with an ice pick. To promote the album, using the new hip worldwide web, there was an online chat set up with Jackson in collaboration with MTV. Additionally, the music video for Got Till It's Gone premiered right before the 1997 MTV VMAs. She also signed copies of the album at the Virgin Megastore in New York City, something that does not exist anymore, the day the album was released. (laughs) The album yeah. became- <laughs> something that is no longer a thing at a place that no longer exists. My God, signing record copies at a record store like wow, of physical records. Yeah, so st- what a concept. <laughs> the album became Jackson's fourth consecutive album to chop the Billboard 200. The album was certified triple platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America and has sold an estimated eight million copies worldwide. Singles from the album include Got Till It's Gone, which was the first single, which features Q-Tip and samples Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi. Single was released September 22nd, 1997, and wasn't released as a commercial single. This gets us into the weird thing we've talked about on the show where something couldn't technically chart on Billboard because it wasn't like an official commercial single. But as a result, it wasn't ineligible for the Billboard Hot 100 It did, however, peak at number 36 on Billboard's Hot 100 Airplay chart, which probably doesn't exist anymore, and reached number three on the R&B Hip Hop Airplay chart. Internationally, the song reached the top 20 in most European markets, including France, Germany, Italy, and Switzerland. The music video, directed by by Mark Romanek, who also directed the music video for Scream, featured Janet Jackson as a lounge singer and would go on to win the Grammy for Best Short Form Music Video and is the only Grammy she won for this album. Together Again is the second single, uh, was released December 2nd, 1997, and spent a record of 46 weeks on the chart, topped the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 for two weeks, as well as reaching number one on the Billboard Dance Club Songs chart. The single was additionally certified gold by the RIAA, and worldwide it peaked in the top five of most countries, such as Canada and the U.K., The single sold 6 million copies worldwide and is one of the best-selling CD singles of all time and Janet's highest-selling single of all time. Originally penned as a ballad, it was remixed to become an op-tempo dance song. It had two music videos, one directed by Seb Janiak, who's a French director, and was filmed in Tanzania and features Janet and her dancers dancing in between scenes of them living alongside wild animals in the Serengeti. The other video for the deeper remix was directed by her then husband, Renee Elizondo Jr., which features Janet in her apartment. By the way, I should note, so she and Elizondo got married, I believe, in 1989, or actually it was like the early 90s, and he had been a dancer, and he was heavily involved throughout the production of 
the albums she released while they were married. So he was a producer, he was a writer, he was a uh, director at times, like he was all over the place. The next single was I Get Lonely, which is released February 26, 1998, and peaked at number three, becoming Jackson's 18th consecutive top 10 hit on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, a record only beat by the Beatles and Elvis. The song was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Female R&B Vocal Performance, and the music video was directed by Paul Hunter, who's a big name on our podcast when it comes to music videos. And I had to cut it down, but he's known for directing Honey by Mariah Carey, can't Hold Me Down with Puff Daddy and Mace, Notorious B.I.G.'s Hypnotize, Usher's My Way, Everclear's Father of Mine, Holes Malibu, Jennifer Lopez's If You Had My Love, TLC's Unpretty, D'Angelo's Untitled, How Does It Feel, and coincidentally, several of Aaliyah's videos. Additionally, this song had a remix titled The TNT Remix, which features vocals from Blackstreet and has an electro R&B hip-hop soul instrumental produced by Timbaland and Teddy Riley. I should also note that a solo version of the remix was produced under the title TNT Main Mix, Janet Only, because I had to clarify that. (laughs) And this one actually got a lot of airplay. Um, Some of the other remixes too, but I feel like this was one where it got quite a bit of uh, airplay regularly. Um, Like this was the version that played more frequently on the hit music station in DC, which was Z104 at the time. Hashtag if you know, you know. The next single is Go Deep, which might be my favorite song on the album. The song was released on June 15th, 1998. Much like Got Till It's Gone, the song was ineligible to chart on the Billboard 100, but it did top the U.S. Billboard Hot Dance Club play chart and went to number two in Canada and made the top 20 in Iceland, New Zealand, and the U.K. The music video was directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who at the time were best known for having directed the Smashing Pumpkins Tonight Tonight and 1979 music videos. Now we best know them, obviously, for having directed Little Miss Sunshine. The camera That's what work I they- thought. I was like, yeah. wait, are those the Little Miss Sunshine people? Also, yeah. a quick aside about Go Deep, there were some girls that I went to the same dance school as me that had like a really great point routine to that song. And that always that song always makes me think about that. Oh, that's, I love that. You know, I have that too about certain songs from the 90s and 2000s. Like I did ballet as a little kid. So like I think of Walking on Broken Glass by Annie Lennox. And oh no. There were, some older girls did a, a, a routine to that one. Um. It's just funny. I mean, but, now uh, I associate Walking on Broken Glass with like being in CVS, but <laughs> <laughs> yours is a much nicer story. The camera work that was used in that 1979 music video was also used in the to film the Go Deep video, um, which Marco, as I am not the film major in both of us, I don't know what the technical term is, but it's like, it's not quite POV, but it's like a camera has been stuck to like the characters uh, or like the, the actor's uh, chest, if you will, and is like directly facing them. Uh, but it's like very tilty. It's like, it gives me a bit of a headache watching these music videos. Um, is there a technical term for this? They might be using Steadicam, but I didn't, I haven't seen either of these videos in a really long time. So I'm not entirely certain what they're doing. I'd have to look at it, but it might be that they are shooting it on a Steadicam to make it seem like, I don't know, like Blair Witch Project, like home video style. Yeah. I, I think really that's can't remember what the videos it. look like. The video features Ty Hodges, who's best known as playing Ren's rival Larry on Even Stevens as a kid Mm. whose parents, yeah, go out of town for the weekend. And all of a sudden, Janet Jackson and her dancers are at the door. And before he knows it, they've invited a bunch of their friends 
and he has a wild house party going on. And just as Janet is about to kiss him on his bed, he is then woken up by a pizza guy ringing the doorbell. And then he realizes it was all a dream. Uh, the other final singles to note, um, which didn't really chart in the U.S. Uh, are You, which was released September 3rd, 1998. And Every Time, which was the final single released November 17th, 1998, which really only charted on the U.S. bubbling under 100 singles. Again, I know there's so many charts with these really long names that don't mean anything. Like I don't know. I mean, this it really feels like some sort of pyramid scheme. All of these like little offshoot charts. It's like this is just so that record companies can claim that something charted so they can charge more money for something. That's what I feel like. The bubbling under one. Wait, what? What does that mean? That's like saying the prequel, like the weekend, the preekend. It just like seems so Uh, weird. I don't know. It's like a a prelude to a a number one hit single. Like what? Uh, in, in terms of the tour that came out of the Velvet Rope, to support the album, she embarked on the Velvet Rope tour, which began April 16th, 1998, went through January 30th, 1999, spanning six legs of 125 shows across Europe, North America, Japan, New Zealand, Africa, and Australia. The tour Jesus grossed- Christ, did we learn nothing from the last tour? I know. I don't know how she did it. Uh, the tour grossed $33.1 million, which would now be 51 51- million, and that was last calculated in 2019. The tour was mainly choreographed by Tina Landon, who also did the choreography for most of Jackson's videos at the time, and is also known for doing the choreo for Ricky Martin's Live in La Vida Loca, Maya's Case of the X, and Michael and Janet's Scream video. Um, Oh, I just watched that video. It's such... Oh, my God. The Maya video. Yeah, with the the sticks. Great choreography. Iconic. I rewatched the Scream one because I feel like one of my first memories of MTV as a kid is seeing that music video in France because my cousins were watching MTV at the time in France. And like that video, what I think it must have been like summer of 1996 or something like that was frequently on TV. That was the first dance move I tried to copy and completely fucked myself up. Like when they drop down to their knees and then jump back up like in oh, like a yeah. plie shape. Oh, oh, boy, did I hurt myself real oh my good God. that time. <laughs> the bruises. Ugh. Oh, Ugh. I went down and did not come up afterwards. <laughs> so <laughs> that should tell you all you need to know about how that went for me. It should be noted. <laughs> <laughs> it should be noted that Landon began her career as a Laker girl when Paula Abdul was the choreographer. And Abdul was actually behind a lot of Janet's control album and Rhythm Nation choreography. The opening acts for this tour included In Sync, which, by oh, wow. the way, oh, yeah. Janet Jackson personally selected them because she liked mm-hmm. the band and, in particular, Justin Timberlake so much. Fuck Justin Timberlake. Usher. Fuck Justin Timberlake. <laughs> We are Other, a fuck Justin Timberlake podcast. 100%. Well, and it made me even angrier given everything, right? right? She right? trusted you. She fucking gave you a break and this is how you thank her. Cool. Thank you so much. Just because you have Spit some petty her. bullshit Spit with Britney her. Spears. Did you see the news recently that he he did this whole Super Bowl stunt with Janet because he wanted to like overshadow Britney's performance from the VMAs? I'm like, you petty little fucking bitch. <sighs> So petty. So, so you petty. Sac- yeah, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yes, let's just sacrifice a black woman's career just because you're having some sort of like dick peeing <sighs> contest with uh, imaginary people, just the like, completely one sided, whatever. Anyway, so annoying. It really so does. Annoying. You know what? You're right. It does get me heated to know that she gave him this break and this is how he repays her. Amazing. 100%. Iconic. <laughs> Iconic. 100%. 
dipshit. <laughs> and he is a major reason why her sales have declined in the last decade. So fuck him. Other other people who opened for her during this tour included Usher, 98 Degrees, All Saints, Boys to Men. Sorry, pause level. for a quick second. Usher is not much better. Did you see that recently he was called out by a stripper for handing out fake money like with his face on it? No. No. <laughs> okay. So because oh, I don't, no. don't want to keep like prolonging things and interrupting you, but you said Usher and like I immediately flashed on that news story that no. happened recently. Mm-hmm. Uh. And I mean, after we did our Jessica Simpson episode, knowing that like Nick Lachey, not that he was anything wrong with him, but he wasn't exactly a great husband. Uh, It's just like, this makes me angry. (laughs) In the Um, words of One Tree Hill, shut up, Nick Lachey. (laughs) Shut up, Nick Lachey. But All Saints and Boys to Men can still get it. Uh, Okay, yeah, of course. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. They're, they're couple- all good. <laughs> I'm just going to end this really on the legacy. I love this album, which still fucks almost 25 years later, both figuratively and literally. Thank you. While I could, <laughs> while I could appreciate the music as a 9 to 11-year-old, which is kind of my age range during the album's heyday, it's doing this album research as an adult that has made me realize just how ahead of its time this album was and how much this album served as a blueprint for future artists who were looking to move into the next more adult phases of their music careers. You don't get a lot of Britney, Christina, and Rihanna's work in the last decade plus without Velvet Rope, specifically Christina's Stripped album, Rihanna's Rated R album, and I would say Britney's self-titled In the Zone and Blackout. I read a number of think pieces by fellow old millennials that felt really seen by this album because it promoted the strength of women, specifically Black women, because of the Afrocentric themes in the Together Again music video, and because of the lyrics that embraced queerness. In terms of mainstream albums at the time, you didn't see these topics so openly discussed, specifically by women. And I think the biggest crime of the Velvet Robe album is that it wasn't nominated for more awards. It received two Grammy nominations and won just one. Considering how much it influenced music, specifically women in music, it's insane. I like just reading about how much, how many artists have been influenced by this. You see like music videos that are like homages to music videos from this album. Even Janet Mock named herself after Janet Jackson and the album because of all the themes that she spoke about throughout this album. I know that. Yeah, I didn't either until I did this research and was just really pleasantly surprised. But ultimately, justice for this album, it didn't sell nearly as well as Janet or Rhythm Nation or Control. But I mean, you know, nowadays those numbers would still be bonkers. But also, like, ultimately, it it really is kind of the most creatively satisfying of all of Janet's albums. 
Yeah, I think that Velvet Rope and Aaliyah's self-titled actually in terms of themes and where they were in their careers and like even sonically have a lot more in common than I initially thought just because I do love Janet, um, but I don't, unless doing specific research about Velvet Rope, I wasn't really sure, you know, where in her career this sort of falls and what she was going through at the time. It's like, you know, all of like the hits and you love those, but you don't really know most of the story. So that was a really fun listen, you know, even though I'm actively, yeah, even though I'm actively participating in this podcast, it was just fun to learn all that stuff. (laughs) So now in a long list of things I love that are forcing me to reconcile how old I actually am, One of my favorite albums of all time, Aaliyah's self-titled, a no-skips album that would sadly be her last, turns 20 in July. To have such an iconic, groundbreaking album in the year 2001, it is much harder than you'd think. Here is a small sample of what else came out that year. Tool's Lateralis, Jay-Z's The Blueprint, Aaliyah's self-titled, Alicia Keys' Songs in A Minor, Radiohead, Amnesiac, Nas, Stillmatic, System of Down, Toxicity, Michael Jackson, Invincible, fucking Usher, 8701, Missy Elliott, Miss E, So Addictive, Mary G. Blige, No More Fucking Drama, Gorillaz, Self-Titled, Stain, Break the Cycle, even D12's Devil Night. With the exception of the last two artists, Stained and D12, I owned all of those CDs in 2001. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I own, I I own quite a few of them. That's, that's pretty incredible. It reminds me of the time that I, we wanted to have a themed concert for our our acapella group called 2001 a music odyssey because like that year was wild so many songs that are that you still listen to today that still get airplay that are seminal works in like all of these artists trajectory it's very interesting i mean i obviously can't speak to once again stained or d12 which d12 <laughs> i don't know if they still make music but i, I remember so. <laughs> my high school boyfriend remembered my birthday because of d12 because my birthday is december 11th so d12 minus one was how that moron remembered my fucking birthday <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank God 2005 is behind us. So Aaliyah Self-Titled kind of came out at the perfect time in my life personally. It was the end of middle school and I was going into high school. So many Verdugo Verdugo dances were marked with the memory of a baby cooing on Are You That Somebody? Which, side note, I did try to find out who the baby is. What's the baby doing? How does the baby feel about? So, well, all all of this is to say it's not, it doesn't end satisfactorily. So go ahead. Sorry. What's your question? So the first time I've ever heard that sample is Prince's Delirious. Is that the first time that sample comes up? So the sample is a baby cooing from like some joke album from like the 70s. I didn't write it all down because again, it's like (laughs) no one knows who the baby is, is essentially the answer. So, you know, who knows how that baby feels about being in such an iconic song or iconic songs because it's been used multiple times. But anyway, I was moving away from ballet around this time and was exploring other forms of dance when Aaliyah self-titled came out. And it was really sort of the perfect album for all of the different stuff I was trying out, whether it was like jazz, contemporary, hip hop. I was obsessed. I still am obsessed with this album. This episode was a little bit tough to write without getting a little emotional. I think a lot of millennials have an attachment to Aaliyah because we all feel like we grew up with her. 100%. I mean, you know, when they talk about the celebrities, your generation remembers where you were like when they passed away. Aaliyah is Mm -hmm. one for me. I like remembers the day Mm -hmm. before I started eighth grade. Yeah. She was so young when she started. So and by the time she grew up, quote unquote, and released self-titled, which was, you know, her declarative, like, I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. You could say the same thing about her audience. And her death was a sad day in my house. My mom has only woken me up three times because someone died. 
Princess Di, Aaliyah, and my grandma. My mom didn't even point out or mention 9-11, not to always bring that up, but I can't help it. I just want to point out for context, my mom has brought, she rushed into my room and she was like, oh my God, wake up. I was like, what was happening? She's like, Aaliyah died. I was like, why would you wake up to tell me that? Now I'm sad. Just immediately started crying. <laughs> what a day. But it was like, it was late August. So I hadn't started school yet. But like, you know, one of those like things where you wake up, you're like, oh God, I'm late for something. And no, I was late to hear bad news. So thanks a lot, mom. She doesn't listen. It's fine. She doesn't care. Um, <laughs> because this is her last album and she should very much still be making music today. And in light of the severity of the R. Kelly abuse, I want to be sensitive and keep as much of the focus on her art and not comment too much on her personal life. 100%. That being said, let's fucking get into Aaliyah's self-titled. It was her third and final studio album, and it was released July 7th, 2001 by Blackground Records. Remember that name when we get to why we can't stream this album legally today or buy it on iTunes for that matter. So it was released by Blackground and Virgin Records. It was also known informally as the Red Album because of the cover art. It's Aaliyah in a top that I continue to look forward to this day, like a gorge, like long white tank top, like deep mm, V and like on a mm-hmm. red background. Mm-hmm. Hair, effortless waves. Now considered a seminal R&B record that influenced everyone from Beyonce to Drake to The Weeknd, it is widely considered also one of the best R&B records of all time. So there was a five-year gap between Self-Titled and One in a Million, which was released in 96. During that time, Aaliyah graduated from high school in 1997 to give, so young. to give more background on exactly how young she was. She then released a monster single, Are You That Somebody, for the Dr. Doolittle soundtrack yeah. and began her acting career. And because of how wildly popular Are You That Somebody was, she didn't want to oversaturate the music market, so she pivoted to an acting career. Originally slated February 1999 release, Aaliyah began recording the album in 98, and she worked on a couple songs at Timbaland before she started shooting Romeo Must Die. She picked it back up in 99 in New York and tried to get Trent Reznor to produce some songs. Apparently, he was one of her musical idols, but their schedules didn't mesh, which I am so mad we did not get to hear an Aaliyah-Trent Reznor mashup. Can you imagine? Like, the album itself is already great, but like, oh, God. That just makes well, me get so into it. sad and angry. Oh my God, I know. I'll get into it when I talk about some of the specific tracks because there are a couple songs that's, that are sort of going towards that more like rock hard edge vibe. And you're like, if only Trent Reznor could have worked on this, it would have gone up several levels. Not to say it's not a bad song. It's a great, all of the songs are great. But just now that you know this, you're like, well, now I just want to know what that would just sound like. Mm-hmm. She released Try Again as part of the Romeo Must Die soundtrack, and it was her first number one single on pop charts. Essentially, Try Again was so successful, it got Blackground a distribution deal with Virgin Records, and one of its first releases under this new deal would be Aaliyah's self-titled. So she worked mostly with all Blackground producers and writers for this, including Timbaland, who was signed to the same label at, at the time with his protege, Magoo. Also working on this was Butta, J-Dub, Rapture, and Eric Seats. Static Major, a.k.a. Stephen Garrett, who wrote Are You That Somebody and Try Again, came back to write some of the best tracks on this album, Rock the Boat, More Than Woman, Loose Rap, which he is credited as a feature on. Noticeably absent from the production process, though, is Missy Elliott. When Hankerson, uh, Aaliyah's manager slash uncle and CEO slash founder of Blackground, offered contracts to Missy and Timbaland off the success of One in a Million, Missy declined. I'm sure she could smell the scam coming from a mile away and signed with Electra. And he ended up signing Timbaland, obviously. And so at this time, Missy was busy making Miss E so addictive. So a leftover song that got cut from One in a Million, I Care For You, which is a Missy song, ended up on this album. So she is sort of still related, not technically within the process, but through the song that she had originally written for One in a Million. 
One of the most influential aspects of this album is the way it effortlessly blends funk, hip-hop, rock, and some electronica, and yet is still distinctly R&B. It also incorporates synthesized melodies, fragment beats, distorted guitar, and some sort of eccentrically manipulated vocals and song structures. A lot of the techniques are now common in pop star productions. The themes of the album dealt with the complexities of romantic love and different stages in relationships. Aaliyah viewed the album as a reflection of herself as both a young adult and a matured vocalist. The album finished recording in March 2001, but the release was delayed because of she was filming Queen of the Damned. And then they ended up shooting the album cover out in Australia. So the track listing, listening over to Aaliyah in its entirety, shout out to R&B Pop Lover 14 on YouTube because you cannot legally stream this album anywhere. She took some huge risks in the production and sort of like the weirdness and um, how dis- how very distinct in sound each track is. She banked on the fact that all of it would end up working together, and it does. This album not only holds the fuck up, it also had no business being this good in 2001. And I also Sorry. add that like, no, 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 but like, she, you know, it got a lot of great press at the time. But like, I believe if it had been released in the last five years, I think that we would have seen Aaliyah be nominated for Grammy after Grammy. Like, I think there's just been so much more respect given partially because of the Grammys like are getting to have a more diverse set of voters and all that. I digress. Anyway, I just think that like this album was already amazing on its own in 2001. But I think if it had been released now, it would still sound fresh and get the press it deserved. I mean, you listen to it now and it does sound fresh. It sounds like it could come out right now and you would never yes. know the difference. You would never know yes. it came out 20 fucking years ago. So even though it only had three proper singles, it bears repeating that Aaliyah is a no skips album. We'll start at the top with the lead single, We Need a Resolution, another iconic music video where there are snakes and a smoky mm. eye I attempted to recreate for Homecoming Dance that did not work out the same. Mm. We have got Loose Rap, an underrated classic about men with shitty pickup lines. Rock the Boat, I like to call the song Big Pimpin' for Ladies because it's just like a hella sexy song and you're like on a boat and like it's beautiful, it's the ocean, like truly the background looks fake. It's also produced by Seats and Rapture, which I thought was interesting to note because I think that sometimes Timbaland gets the credit for this song and he this was not one produced by him. There's More Than a Woman, personal favorite track, personal favorite music video. This one was produced by Timbaland and pretty sure that's Rashida Jones in the music video towards the end, like baby Rashida Jones in the background when they do the big party scene. Um, she shows up in such great stuff in like the late 90s, early 2000s, like Gap commercials. Obviously, she's on um, Freaks and Geeks. Like, I love seeing baby Rashida and various things. Never Know More, which is about abuse, mixes both older soul and modern hip-hop strings and arrangements, and it was produced by Butta. I think that's like a really beautiful ballad that showcases what her voice really can do. I Care For You, which is the Leftover Missy track, is a great, sad, unrequited love song, perfect for pretend singing to your best friend that you're secretly in love with. Extra Smooth is another song about guys who try too hard. It's super fucking catchy. And if I had to guess, this probably would have been another single if they had kept releasing singles from this album. Or actually, it could have been Read Between the Lines, which is like a rhythmic, like almost kind of like a samba Latin percussion beat produced by Butta. Oh, another great song. You Got the Nerve, which is a cheating anthem. I Refuse, another song that makes you sadder in retrospect now that we know what we know. Mm-hmm. It's whatever the closest you'll get to a love ballad on this album. It sounds like something Rihanna would sing today, actually, to, to further my point that this album is still hella fucking fresh. 
I Can Be. Now, these are getting more into like the rock heavy uh, section of her album. It still has a two step beat. It is very much a headbanger, but really makes you think like, okay, this is like what she was trying to go towards. Like what would be like the next level after that? Uh, Those Were the Days. It's like a super easy R&B song. It's very special because Aaliyah sings it, but it does sort of sound like maybe like the most standard of all of her songs. What If is another rock crossover that really makes me bummed about the Trent Reznor album. It's a good song, but really, really curious what they would have come up with. And then Try Again, you know what it is, all right? I don't need to. You've heard the song. You've seen Romeo Must Die. Iconic, iconic, iconic. In a lot of ways, this album was a declaration of healthy self-respect and leaving behind people who do not serve you and treat you badly. And I really uh, cannot recommend revisiting this album if you haven't done so recently. I will link to the to the YouTube that has this album literally in full. And then if you scroll through the comments, there are timestamps so you can skip to different songs if you want. But you won't need to because, as I've said, no skips here. So Aaliyah debuted at number two on the Billboard charts, selling 187,000 copies, the highest of her career, but was still but was still considered to be selling slower than projected and also compared to how quickly One in a Million Sold was selling slower. We Need a Resolution had been released as the lead single in April, but did not get like a ton of radio play and it only reached 59 on the Billboard Hot 100. Aaliyah planned to embark on a huge concert tour that was going to be supported by Blackground and Virgin, who were heavily invested in the record's success, but they really wanted her to have another big high chart single before she went on tour. So in August of 2001, she shot two music videos kind of like back to back. She shot More Than a Woman, then flew to the Bahamas to shoot Rock the Boat. Then on August 25th, Aaliyah and eight other crew members died on a plane crash shortly after takeoff. The plane was overloaded. The pilot had forged paperwork and was not qualified to fly, in addition to being on cocaine and drunk. Although plans for further release of singles or music videos were on hold, the album sales skyrocketed after her death. Sales have been diminishing since its release in July, hovering around 444,000 copies. But around the news of her death, it was the last day of the Nielsen SoundScan sales tracking for that week, which she had sold 60,000 copies. The following week after her passing, the album sold 305,000 copies and went from number 19 to number one on the Billboard 200. It was the record's highest sales week and it's the first time a recording artist climbed to number one after their death since John Lennon in 1980 with his album Double Fantasy. In the U.S., Aaliyah spent 68 weeks on the Billboard 200 and by December 2009 had sold 2.6 million copies. Blackground, which ended its joint deal with Virgin in November, moved to Universal and wanted to release the video for more than a woman, but it was blocked domestically until they worked it out with Virgin because there was some sort of clause in their contract saying that they wouldn't release any of this, any music or music videos from this album unless they agreed on the terms together. So instead, they went to Europe. So in the United Kingdom, More Than a Woman was released as a single on January 7th, 2002 and entered the singles chart at number one, while her album re-entered the chart at 65. Basically, self-titled got a whole nother life in Europe months and months after its release in July. This also furthers the notion that this album is fairly universally loved. So it's pretty much canon that Aaliyah redefined R- what R&B could be and contributed to the success of Timbaland's career. He went on to work on Justified after this and Nelly Furtado's album after that. But life after Aaliyah... It is famously difficult to get a hold of this album and really any music of Aaliyah's that's R. Kelly free. It's not on Spotify. It's not on Apple. It's not on Google. You can't even fucking buy it. I found a listing for a physical CD on eBay. So the short answer to this is yes, it is a rights estates issue. But honestly, it's deeper. There's a great complex article that I can, since I'm doing links in the show notes, can also link to that really goes into the whole legality around the background mess, including 
Barry Hankerson buying his ex-girlfriend Salon just so he could fucking fire her. Like, this is just like a small glimpse into the amount of, dude, so much fuckery and nonsense that's been going down behind the scenes. But I'll do my best to give you an abridged version here. The disarray around her business affairs in the wake of her untimely passing was complicated by the fact that all three of her albums are on now defunct Blackground Records. And the labels also had different deals for every single album's release. The label was founded by the father-son team of Barry and Jomo Hankerson. Formerly, they were also not only Aaliyah's manager, but also R. Kelly's manager for 10 years of his career. Further complicating matters is, like I said, each album is distributed by a different label. So Agent Nothing But a Number is on Kelly's former label, uh, Jive, which they hold the rights to that album. That's why that's on streaming service. That's why that's on streaming services. While mm-hmm. One in a Million is distributed by Atlanta and self-titled is owned by Virgin, which is now owned by Universal. And there are two missing albums that sometimes appear on iTunes for a few hours and then disappear because there are constant rights issues happening. <laughs> Blackground at various times also had Timbaland, Tony Braxton, JoJo, and Tank on its roster, but had not released an album since 2013 and has been mired in lawsuits in the past few years. If you could remember, JoJo was, she's been in a lawsuit with Blackground for um, almost her entire career. She only recently got into it. Tony Braxton was in a huge years long battle with them as well. Timbaland somehow got out of it like unscathed, but JoJo and Tony Braxton were caught up in lawsuit hell for so years. So long. And JoJo, if you go to her Spotify page, she has re-recorded Get Out and uh, Too Little Too Late. Like she has re-recorded versions of them because the originals cannot be put on uh, her Spotify page. Well, she's got, you know, Taylor Swift syndrome, you know, I mean, I feel like that was probably the most I didn't do. I'm not going to go into the rights of that. But Who Weekly does a really good job explaining that when that happened. But I would say it's sort of like a similar she's gone through similar issues JoJo has. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I, she has talked about it at length. Also, I think in 2016, when she re-released those tracks, she had to talk about how long she could finally talk about the, how long this lawsuit was going on for. And I guess that's a huge Hankerson trademark is that they essentially just drag out these lawsuits and they can't anymore. And then they just settle. And I think he's finally running out of money. And so that's why we've been hearing more rumblings about them allegedly trying to come to some sort of conclusion and get this finally all up on streaming. I was just going to say that it's that's also been an issue with a lot of like 60s and 70s acts who may have had like a hit here and there, not like really big name ones, but ones that were signed to like smaller labels that then got bought by, you know, whatever label and they've been in court battles. And so you see these weird like re-recorded versions of songs. It's just it's it's messy. I I yeah, I must I, I just can't imagine what it's like to be an artist in that scenario where you just can't have your original masters because of legal drama. Well, in addition to all of that, there's apparently a lot of leftover unused tracks from the self-titled sessions that are archived by Blackground that can't see the light of day. But because of internal conflicts and legal complications, labels, producers, family members, they continue to go unreleased. I'm sure, well, actually, I'm not sure if you remember this, but a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, Drake and one of his producers were trying to do some sort of like... They were trying to sample like unreleased Aaliyah tracks and like make some sort of like Drake Aaliyah album because he's, you know, obsessed with her as well. And and that got shut down. Like I remember Missy and Timbaland put out some sort of statement where they're like, we do not support this. And this is like actively hurting the family. And then they completely backed off. And I think they tried to leak 
some of like the demos that they had recorded for it, like to see if anybody was interested. And it was a resounding no. So they completely like walked it back. <laughs> like I even went on Spotify and like tried to do like a little half ass search to see if it was still up and I couldn't find anything. So seems like they took it all back. But all of this is to say is that it's a mess. And you know, allegedly, as I said, her music is coming, quote unquote, soon to streaming. I'm sure some people, if you follow this sort of thing, saw the announcement in Variety towards the end of 2020. But it's a big old wait and see. There's a lot of talk because of this, though, about her music not being readily available. It diminishes her legacy. And it's hard kind of not to agree. I definitely think the reason behind her absence on streaming service goes deeper than money, though, by all accounts. It seems that Barry Hankerson never really recovered after she died. And the whole subject is extremely hard for him to deal with. Like he wanted to release some of the unreleased tracks that they had. But anytime people would like play him something, he would have to leave the room. And there is also speculation that he leaked the R. Kelly tape to Joe DeRogatis. So, you know, survivor's guilt, etc. I think that, you know, Barry is caught up in being petty, but also in a lot of pain. And it's sort of um, it's unfortunate that it's hampering her legacy in some ways. It is kind of interesting to me that um, for how much influence, you know, um, Destiny's Child or Brandy or Monica or even Janet Jackson, um, all these kind of R&B artists have had so much influence on like this new generation of artists coming out and, you know, are frequently sampled and whatnot, that because of all of these things, Aaliyah is very noticeably absent uh, from that. Of course, people talk about her in interviews and might reference her in like the clothing they wear and that kind of thing. But definitely um, is kind of sad to see her not get the um, credit and love that I believe she is certainly due. I mean, if there's one reassuring thing and oddly coming from the YouTube comments from the album of this uh, coming from the YouTube comments underneath Aaliyah's album, that's like, you know, streaming technically illegally. Don't report it. You guys do not report it. No tagging. Don't tell them that it's there. OK, because my Aaliyah CD is at my mom's and I do not have a CD player. I have no way to get this digitally. So this YouTube <laughs> is my only source. But judging by the it's comments that are ex- judging by the comments that are extremely current, like from like like a month ago, like even some from 2020, her memory is very alive and well. And it's they all seem these are like the nicest comments that you'll ever see on YouTube. Like they're all just like this album's ahead of its time. It's gorgeous. We miss you, baby girl. And I think also in light of like DMX's passing recently, it's it was a little bit bittersweet to to be listening to this. And I know that he uh because they were in Romeo Must Die together, that they had like a, a friendship and there was that photo recirculating of the two of them. So I think that I don't know necessarily if her legacy is in danger of being diminished, but I think the longer it doesn't stay on streaming, I think it's sort of like being on TV. Like your reach is not as far, right? Like you have to really sort of want to seek it out. And, you know, unless your parents are millennials, I don't really know if you even know to look out for this. And hopefully if you hear it in a, like if you hear it sampled somewhere, you can trace it back. But I want to end it on a positive note. I do hope that they work everything out contractually and otherwise to get her music to the people where she would want it to be. 100%. I also hope that we do get an Aaliyah, like a really solid Aaliyah documentary. I think there were good specials here and there over the years on MTV, but I would really like to see a great Aaliyah documentary in the next couple of years. It's kind of tough because I feel like her family blocks a lot of stuff, especially yeah. like her brother. And they are rightfully so very um, Protective. selective about her memory. Yeah. And, you know, they have every right to. So I don't know. I think it'll be some time. I think 
I can't believe it's been 20 years since she's passed and I can't believe this album. You really, you listen to it and I, I, you close your eyes. Like it truly does not sound like it's from 20 years ago. So thanks Aaliyah self-titled for uh, making music that sounds as young as we feel on the inside. 100%. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Old Millennials. If you have listened to more than one of these, because I said that as if um, with the implication being that you have listened to more than one of these, I hope that you're subscribed to us wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on iTunes or Google or Amazon. And if you like what you've been listening to, well, why don't you just leave us a review? We're so close to 30 reviews i am like almost going to mail you a sticker if you leave yes. our 30th review like that's yes. how this is where, i will photoshop you i will photoshop oh my God. Your you'll face. get an emily original just go to our go this is a perfect segue to say to go to our instagram if you'd like to see a sample of emily's handiwork we are on instagram and facebook at the old millennials pod and you can follow us individually on twitter i am at marg she wrote and I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. Do you think I should add the baby at the end of this? Like, if I can find it? Yes. Like, yes. Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.